Greetings, this is Austin Bridges welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 83. Sounds about right. 83. (laughs) We can do a range. You can say this is episode 83 to 85. (laughs) (laughs) This is an episode somewhere between 80 and 85. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. Towards this end has two websites, the archive website llresearch.org and the community website bringforth.org. During each episode, we respond to questions sent to LL Research from spiritual seekers like you. Our panel today consists of myself and Gary Bean, each of us a devoted student of the Law of One. Your questions allow us to explore the Law of One and related matters of metaphysical interest. We hope only to offer a resource that enhances your own seeking process. Please know that our replies are not the final word on these subjects. We ask each who listens to exercise their discernment and be sensitive to the resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Austin, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's podcast, In the Now. You may notice a obvious absence from this episode. Um, if you follow the blogworthy or the Camelot Journal at all, you know that Jim is currently... Uh, very busy taking care of an ailing friend and has been out of town a lot. And uh, a lot of the LL research schedule has had to adapt to Jim's service oriented heart lately. Uh, So we miss him dearly and um, hope to get him back soon. And also you may notice that it's been a while since there's been a podcast episode published or actually because of the way we publish, um, you might've noticed there was a big gap Uh, before the last episode that was published. Uh, We are really trying to get things back on track. A big part of that is due to Jim's busy schedule lately and um, just busyness in LL research uh, in general. But we really do want to make sure that we do a regular recording of In the Now. And once things normalize a little bit in Jim's life, we can get back to a more normal recording schedule. So for the time being, LL Research is not necessarily a bi-weekly podcast. It's a sort of a when-we-can-get-it-in podcast. <laughs> so hopefully we can get it in more often in the coming days. But I've got Gary here, and um, we have some questions. Gary, you good to go? Good to go. All righty. Uh, our question today comes from our good friend, Lily. Big shout-out to Lily. A good friend, longtime listener, and volunteer for LL Research. We love her a lot. Uh, hi, Lily. Um, she sent us a question recently that has to do with free will, and I'll read the whole thing, and then Gary and I will go through each point and uh, discuss each one individually. So Lily wrote, Avoiding infringement of free will seems to be a mantra that the Confederation members chant in every contact session because it is of primary importance. As they can see what constitutes an infringement, they can avoid it wisely. How about us? We walk in semi-darkness. Our third density veil is so heavy. So in our daily activities, how can we know if we are infringing on other people's free will? How can we prevent such accidents out of desire to serve others? Are there some basic rules to keep in mind? 
what constitutes infringement of free will in the sense that we understand? What are the consequences of such a violation, metaphysically speaking, and how to correct them? I would appreciate if you could share your insights and experience on this topic. Um, that is an excellent question. Thank you so much, Lily. I've been wanting to do a show on free will for a little while now, and so you gave us the perfect opportunity. Um, so, Gary, starting with uh, Lily's first question, she asks, How about us? We walk in semi-darkness, and our third density veil is so heavy. So in our daily lives, daily activities, how can we know if we are infringing on the other people's free will? Uh, firstly, I want to say uh, thank you for starting with me on this question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored that you've selected me from the lineup. You're the best option. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, to echo uh, Austin's shout out, hello, Lily. Uh, we love you and you're awesome. So uh, <clears throat> how can we know if we are infringing on other people's free will? Well, there are some really bright examples to me that occupy one end of the spectrum or the other regarding control or rather regarding infringement of free will versus honoring free will that really stand out and are really clear. For instance, if you are enslaving another being and they are chattel or your property, uh, you are infringing on their free will. That's It's pretty black <laughs> and white, unambiguous there. If you are um, humbly uh, attempting to fulfill the request of an other self uh, per their interests, it's likely that you're not infringing on their free will, but serving their free will. If you're doing so, let me add, with love in your heart. However, for so much of our daily experience, um, it is subtle and complex, and I don't think we always can know if we are infringing on free will. I think that... Actually, I was going to get into material that is better suited for the next question, so I'll stop there and say that... The relationships vary regarding how one relates to free will. The relationship from friend to friend or spouse to spouse or parent to child or employer to employee are all very different and they have very different dances around free will. What is appropriate for the parent to do for the child regarding the child's free will would not be appropriate for the wife to do to the spouse or vice versa. Um <clears throat> And I will highlight in examining this question that Ra says, at the present space-time, the condition of well-meant and unintentional slavery are so numerous that it beggars our ability to enumerate them. So in considering this question, one um, can also consider that uh, even very service-to-others-oriented people may be engaging in unintentional infringement upon free will in some form of enslavement of others that seems to be positive or seems to be for their good, but is actually an infringement. Uh, so that's something to consider. And yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, I think that um, Lily's question highlights a very important aspect that I think 
is involved in, in answering this. And that's the idea that we are in third density and we have a heavy veil. And so I really see the difference between the Confederation's infringement on free will and our infringement on free will having very different qualities. Uh, the Confederation is very concerned about offering information that will influence us unduly or to too much of an extent or that we aren't ready for. Whereas concern about infringing free will on earth is a lot like what Gary was talking about. There's the obvious like slavery and then there's the not so obvious slavery. And so it seems like the concerns about infringing on free will can be very, very different between uh, the Confederation and us. So how do we know if we're infringing on somebody's free will? I think that um, the question alone is the best we can do, is uh, constantly contemplate what it means to honor other people's free will. And I don't think that this is going to be consistent. Like Gary was saying, it's very complicated, very complex, changes from relationship to relationship. He mentioned the um, child and parent, but there's also just, you, if you have a friend that you're very close with, you can share things with that friend and tell them things about themselves that it wouldn't be appropriate for somebody, somebody, a stranger to tell them or stranger to tell you. Um, if you have a relationship with teacher and learner, uh, I think that that also constitutes an implied relationship of openness to teaching certain things. Um, I think Zen masters are a great example of how I understand Zen masters to be. Um, the student enters into that relationship very willingly, but from uh, there are stories of Zen masters being kind of abusive, both verbally and physically. They talk about Zen masters hitting their students over the head to teach them a lesson about um, realizing they didn't hit them, something like that. And... Um, that sort of thing is obviously not appropriate if you're a stranger, but if you're a student who has said, uh, this person has something that I want to learn and I'm open to their methods of teaching, then that's completely appropriate. So I think just contemplating relationships, um, taking feedback, watching how people react to what you do, um, following your heart and seeing how what you're doing makes you feel and just constantly contemplating at the end of the day your activities. I think that's really the best thing we can do. I think the question itself um, is our guard against infringing on free will because we will inevitably do so, and the best we can do is to realize it and try to do better. Do you have any um, any further thoughts for that one? Yeah, that's... Um, <clears throat> you raise the point that uh, all things are contextual, even the relationship to free will. I, Doug, what you said about, like, if you have a close friendship, you could pro you might be able to proactively offer them in a mirror in a way that you couldn't with a stranger. If you did with a stranger, it might be, you know, more of a violation of their free will. So they're not always hard and fast rules about what constitutes a breakage of free will. And there's a lot of interpretation involved. You see that even with the Confederation, too, as they're trying to navigate how to respond to Don. Um, they talk about skirting the line, or <laughs> it is a judge by us to be an infringement to do this. And it's really, you know, their interpret. 
their interpretation of how to best respect free will. That is a learning evolving process for them. Yeah, it's even been apparent in how they've interacted in the past. They don't do things now that they've done in the past. Right, right. They have, you know, felt like they've messed up big time, Ross specifically, in uh, interacting directly with the Egyptians. And now they're here to try to correct those distortions that that caused. So um, we like to sometimes think of the Confederation as sort of omnipotent and all-knowing and knows exactly how to act at all times, but they are... Uh, in a lot of ways, naive from our perspective. Um, like, it seems really obvious to me that uh, if you take uh, special information and give it to some people, <laughs> that they're going to try to use it against others. Or at least that's a possibility of what can happen. Or, or like when Yahweh interacted with Earth and made stronger bodies, thinking that it would help these people better grasp the law of one in hopes that they would then use it for service to others. But instead they turned it around and used it to, uh, for service to self. That seems like an obvious conclusion to me. But they, for some reason, couldn't see that as a possibility. Yeah, they've got lots of my bads on their <laughs> record. It's to riff off of what you just said. It's like, to me, it's, it's like uh, looking at two football teams and then giving one team some advantage <laughs> over the other and then saying with the expectation that that the other team is going to then use it for the benefit of all and not maximize it and use it for competition. It just, I don't know, like maybe we're just so deep into our third destiny experience on earth that we're jaded, but it just seems like it's like so obvious that this planet would make use of any sort of advantage that way. Yeah. And then there's another point about the Confederation and the differences between them infringing on free will and us. I do think it is important what Lily said about the veil in regards to sharing information. I personally believe, this is personal interpretation, we have a little bit more leeway in how we as humans can share information. Not to mean that like we can evangelize or proselytize and shove it in people's faces, but obviously like Ra would consider it an infringement on free will to publish a book of their thoughts on earth. But if we just published a book without, you know, proselytization, I think that's fine. Uh, I, I see some interpretation in the law of one community where um, there's this idea that if we are sharing our understanding of the law of one proactively, without the question and answer format like Ra used, then that's an infringement on people's free will. And um, I personally believe that there's a difference of perspective that influences that. Ra has this grand perspective. They are coming from a place of what could be perceived as authority, whereas individuals are share the same veil as whoever they're talking to. They are in the same conditions as whoever they're talking to. They've grown up on earth just like whoever they're talking to. And so they're coming with from that same pool of knowledge that other people are, whereas Ra is sort of like in the next, you know, pool over uh, sharing what that pool is all about. Yeah, it's a lot easier to reject something coming from a fellow human <laughs> than it is from this source that you uh, find authoritative. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, not to dwell too long on this particular question, but thinking about your own position in relationship to others and sense of authority is a 
one of the things that's good to contemplate when considering if you're infringing on free will. Something that we struggle with a lot, uh, or at least I know I do, in you know speaking on behalf of LL Research, the organization that shares the law of one, our greatest desire is to allow seekers to form their own relationship with this material and to not influence it. But at the same time, there has there's a lot of use in sharing different perspectives. But we can't consider our own perspective to just be another one in the crowd because uh, while a lot of you are probably aware that we are just jokers and we are have no clue what we're talking about some people <laughs> will innately see us as being um authorities and we have to really that's why we offer so many disclaimers and that's why we say it over and over again and why it probably gets really old for people who listen a lot um we're not authorities and we don't want to be and it's because we are trying to remove that sense of authority from our positions in relationship to whoever might be listening. Concur. Alrighty. So moving on to the next part of Lily's question. She asks, how can we prevent such accidents out of desire to serve others? There are um, two principles that I'd start with, and then I'll riff on those, those principles from Ra include Ra saying service is only possible to the extent it is requested and it is our feeling that to be each entity which one attempts to serve is to simplify the grasp of what service is necessary or possible so that that is the calling card of the positive polarity. That is one of the chief differences between the positive and negative path is that the negative path calls itself to service. Um, and that service is an imposition of service and it is a conquest. Whereas the positive polarity awaits the request. And that is the MO of the Confederation too. They can only serve in so far as it is requested. What constitutes that request? Some people think that means literally like the person must uh, issue a formal <laughs> written <laughs> request of service from others. But um, that request may take many forms. It could, you could sense that somebody else is in pain and that pain could constitute a request. You offer yourself to help out with that pain. You reach out with um, a, a, a question of how are you doing or is there something I can do for you or are you okay, so on and so forth, which ties into replying to your question, Lily, about what can we do to avoid infringing? What we can do is listen deeply, exercise empathy. Like Ra was saying, essentially, put yourself into the shoes of the other person Get out of your own reality system and literally ask yourself, what is it that this person needs? What are they experiencing? Um, what is it like to be them? And that is a, an exercise in empathy, an exercise in, in listening. And by listening, uh, that also means not arriving to the moment or to the other person with this agenda about uh, what you're going to do to help and how you're going to help 
it means really doing some intake as best as possible. Uh, that could literally mean asking questions or having a conversation or listening to them in other ways. They're nonverbals, whatever it may be. And um, I think marriages probably gives, or in, any intimate relationship gives the best catalyst in this regard because I am learning this over and over with my own wife, <laughs> the, the, the need to be empathetic and to listen and to put myself into her shoes and to find out what it is she needs versus what I think that she needs. So um, to conclude my first initial riff on this, I would also say that other safeguards include um, the intention to be harmless. That is actually some part of the Buddhist vows, I think. One of the uh, uh, vows that Buddhists take is to uh, practice harmlessness. And I think that practice of harmlessness is also a very good general safeguard to avoid infringing on the free will of others. Yeah. Um, my best advice, if you don't want to infringe on the free will of others, is to just sit in a room and meditate alone. <laughs> um, I think that's really the only way you're going to be sure not to do so. And even then, like you're probably infringing on the free will of some uh, parasites that really want you to move around and generate some sweat or something so they can eat it. Um, I think all that was very uh, pertinent. What you were talking about um, in regards to um, the Orion uh, calling themselves to service uh, made me think about how a positive entity might call themselves to service and um, how that might sometimes constitute an infringement on free will, even if they're trying to do good. There's a quote that I heard recently. I don't really know the context. I don't know the um, who this author is, uh, but it goes, uh, you can recognize the people who live for others by the haunted looks on the faces of the others. Um, <laughs> and it's a woman named Catherine Whiteborn who said that. And it made me think a lot. I don't necessarily agree with it completely, but I think what it, at least my interpretation, I have no clue what the context of the quote is. My interpretation is that um, there is a possibility in living for others and trying to serve others that um, you are uh, infringing on their ability to do good by themselves, to um, learn on their own, to help themselves, and sometimes even annoying them in the process or um, even angering them or something like that. But <clears throat> I'm straying from the topic. Um, I, I don't have much to add to what uh, Gary said besides that. Uh, he basically took my answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Point me. <laughs> I talked a little bit about it in the, um, in the first question, though, uh, how to prevent such accidents. I think that this is just a process of learning, essentially. Like, we can do our best to prevent it based on experience, but we have to use our experience to know how to do that. We have to, you know, take that experience into meditation, contemplation, distill it, learn from it, and then that will help us uh, to prevent from doing the same thing in the future. I think I liked uh, what you said at the beginning about, like, if you want to avoid infringing, just sit there and meditate alone <laughs> in a room because uh, I agree we're not going to avoid infringing on others. You can't. You can't, especially in third density. I mean, even 
like uh, you were saying earlier, the Confederation and all their knowledge, nevertheless, and has infringed. Um, and also, you have to consider too that we have a ratio of service to others and service to self inside. So, even the best among us um, <laughs> are likely breaking free will of others at times, however unintentionally. But like you were saying, it's it's part of the learning process. Yeah, I think a lot of seekers can beat themselves up. Um, I don't think all seekers do, but I do notice a tendency sometimes in um, the seekers, they follow the law of one and LL research to be really down on themselves whenever they have moments or times when they're not so loving or when they might have infringed on the free will of others. And um, I like to think about when uh, Don was referring to Ra's interaction in Egypt as a failure, I think is how he termed it. And uh, Ra responded using the same term failure, but then they clarified, this is your term, not ours, mm -hmm. implying that they didn't see what they did as a failure. They now have the responsibility slash honor of correcting the distortions that they created. But to them, that's not a failure. That is just part of the process of serving is doing our best um, not being crippled by the fear of creating distortions, but doing our best to avoid doing so. And then if there is fallout from what we try, stick around and uh, try to fix it. And, um, reconcile whatever harm you might do in the process of trying to do your best by others. I think um, that's really the best thing we can do. Yeah, it would be really difficult to guilt trip Ra. <laughs> <laughs> for their past actions because they're like failure that's your term <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're unflappable i'm sure um so uh, the next question is pretty similar are there some basic rules to keep in mind basic rules no yeah i think i don't at the moment at least have anything new to mine out of my consciousness on that one okay um basic rules for not infringing on free will don't do it <laughs> um, bases covered <laughs> what constitutes infringement of free will in the sense that we understand i was kind of talking about that a little bit in response to the first question go ahead what constitutes infringement um i think one way to try to analyze and come to a sense of what constitutes infringement is looking at the moment or the experience through the lens of control versus love. Um, love inherently by definition is that which respects free will. Love, uh, Ra described love as seeing the creator and the other self. And if you're recognizing the creator and the other self, their divinity, then you're also recognizing their sacred rights to exercise free will and chart their own journey um, whereas if you're if you're exhibiting controlling impulses for various reasons some good intention some just completely service the self then uh, there's a good chance you're moving into infringement and in fact I, I think this is like the the key pivot or divergence point between the two polarities is how they relate to this question of free will. The service to self entity 
um, doesn't respect or honor or regard others as having the right to free will, and they will infringe upon it whenever uh, possible and impose their own will, whereas oppositely, the positive polarity will seek to honor and maximize and support the free will of other selves. Um, and and the and the way the positive polarity relates to that question evolves as an entity evolves too. Like the green ray being will have a different take on what it means to honor free will than the blue ray entity will, than the indigo ray entity will. The green ray, uh, we could get into discussion of martyrdom, but they may even seek to get between the exercise of free will for the other self and the consequences of that free will and take the consequences of that other self's free will upon themselves and become a martyr. Whereas the Blu-ray, being more wise, may step back and let the other self experience the results of their free will. Well, you know, there's lots of ways that analysis can go wrong, too, of course. Um, yeah, any, any attempt to impose one's understanding onto the other self or force the other self to comply with the will of self, whether through physical threat or, or coercion or manipulation or so forth, um, is are things that can constitute <laughs> infringement. Um, but again, and I'll, I'll wrap up my initial thought here, it's such um, a, it can be such a situation dependent and contextual, contextual thing that... Um, there may be moments that the service other's entity needs to technically infringe on the free will of the other self. For instance, if I saw a loved one standing at the edge of a bridge about to jump, like I'm sure as hell going to pull them back from that bridge, even if their free will is to jump and 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 their incarnation i'm um, i'm just going to take the polarity hit on that one and <laughs> and pull them back and there may be uh, particularly in the parent to child relationship there may be many cases where the, the parent has to interfere uh, quote unquote with the the child's exercise of free will to help prevent self-destruction or or to do something that would be outside the child's knowledge and and where that boundary is is super of course subjective and there's no one hard or fast rule but just to make some headway into that conversation i was talking to some friends kind of recently about this scenario that's very hypothetical but it does unfold sometimes um, that really made me kind of uh, take a new light on my own spirituality and these friends are not spiritual they don't have necessarily a um spiritual attachment to certain ideals like truth and love. And this is only slightly related to what you're just saying, but I think it's relevant. Um, the scenario was, do you think it's okay to manipulate somebody for their own good? <laughs> and the specific scenario that they brought up was if you have a family member or a friend or even a stranger who is addicted to drugs and ruining their lives if you had a way to manipulate them into getting help, if you could lie to them in order to get them to get help and 
uh, bend the truth or just flat out deceive them completely. But the end result is them getting help and becoming sober and no longer being addicted, thus saving their life. Is it okay to do so? And unanimously, they all said, yes, absolutely. Like they had no qualms with lying to do good. Um, being the um, spiritually attached person who feels like, felt like there's some not only metaphysical value in maintaining free will, but also in finding ways forward with pure truth and not deceiving or lying. Um, I had to be the odd one out. Nobody understood, could understand why I said what I did, but I didn't hold strong to my opinion. I said, you know, this is sort of an irrational extremist part of me that I'm like questioning because of this conversation. Um, and I still really don't know where I stand on that, but um, it, it's really hard to tell uh, if it's okay to, you know, make those inroads into people's free will. But one thing I think about is that there is a 51%, according to the percentages that Ra uses, 51% service to others orientation required to graduate to the next density, where these questions have a completely different context. I sometimes think that that is a built-in um, thing to allow us the leeway to offer that sort of protection for others, in a sense, um, or defend ourselves, or things like that. When there is a situation where um, it is just inconceivable that uh, we could let it happen. Like you were saying, a friend standing at the edge of a bridge. Of course, we are infringing on their free will by pulling them back. And uh, while I don't think the percentage idea is very elegant, maybe you lose percentage points for doing that. But I think that's maybe what that 49% leeway that we have <laughs> is for. Uh, and also to allow us mistakes, too. Um, it's obviously that 49% isn't an excuse to do whatever you want 49% of the time. I think that if that's how you're looking at it, then you've kind of failed the test already. <laughs> but um, I think that that leeway is to allow us to um, uh, operate in third density without completely just shutting down out of concern for other people's free will. Because I think that would be the natural conclusion. If we felt like there was no situation in which we could impose ourselves into the social group, then we couldn't do anything. We, we could just, like I said, sit in a room and meditate. Uh, so I think that's what that little bit of leeway is for. Um, any more thoughts on that one? Yeah, that touches on a subject that I would be better informed to speak on if I had taken, say, a college course on it or read a book. <laughs> but I, I think uh, one way that is described is in terms of absolute versus relative ethics. And um, you know, one can strive for purity or absolute ethics, say honesty. It will be honest 100% of the time and never tell even a white lie, and I will stick to that absolutely. And that is a, a position of purity, and I'm sure that will contribute strongly to positive polarity and to the development of the blue ray but that purity also in, in the context of a third density illusion will have consequences one uh, 
situation that crystallizes that for me is say, I mean, you're in um, the era of Third Reich Germany and you're hiding a person of uh, Jewish ethnicity in your home and the Nazis show up at your front door. You know, do you, um, and they say, are you harboring any Jews? <laughs> you say, well, I'm... <laughs> I'm an honest person, so yep, they're <laughs> up on the second floor. There's three of them, and their names are. And, or do you tell them no? There's no, you know, there's no Jews in this house. And so purity has its consequences, and this uh, illusion is not always conducive to uh, supporting um, that depth of purity. That purity may generally be better suited for other environments, which is not, as you were saying about the 49%, like, I don't think that's a, a carte blanche to say, all right, well, you know, this is an impure place. And so I'm going to lie as it suits me. I mean, one should, as I think, as an ethic, as like a lodestar on the positive path, uh, do their utmost to adhere to um, the highest uh, absolute principles as possible, but balance that at times with extenuating circumstances of what the situation really needs and where the higher service may be. Is a higher service to the uh, refugees that you're harboring or is it to your honesty and your polarity? I'm about to take a huge misstep uh, after you reference these very... Um extreme extreme intense and real and um and very important topics and say something really nerdy <laughs> it's that i think uh and i apologize to any listeners who don't care at all about what i'm about to say but i think game of thrones <laughs> paints this picture perfectly like it's a great example to me of a character exploration of how um human morality is so gray you're going with ned stark aren't you ned stark and and, and and john snow for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about there are consequences for these characters who um hold so strongly to honesty and truth that um i, I can't spoil it can that there are some really bad consequences <laughs> if you're a game of thrones nerd then you're going to be right on board with me and understand so i won't elaborate no, I think you should spoil it for any listener who hasn't listened to or hasn't watched Game of Thrones to save them the heartache and self-masochistic torture of watching that damn show. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but I will say I will share um, one of my favorite quotes from the, the last season that sort of describes this uh, dynamic and uh, apologize for the language, but it is very graphic and uh, mature show. Um, Jon Snow does something. He, he tells the truth at a point where it would have been beneficial for everybody if he would have just lied and told a small white lie. But Jon Snow, being raised by the Honorable Ned Stark, cannot, for the life of him, lie. He just can't do it. And so he says, as they're, they're giving him trouble for this, they're like, why in the world would you do that? Now we're all in trouble. Yeah. He says, um, when words stop meaning things, then... Uh, what does the world come to? Like something like that. He's like, um, we have to maintain tr purity of truth because otherwise the world is just going to fall. And uh, Tyrion says, well, that is a problem, but the more immediate problem is that we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think Game of Thrones, uh, fiction in general, storytelling is a great way for us to explore these incredible gray areas of morality 
um, we are straying a little far from the path. So let's get back to the, um, I should say I'm straying a little far from the path. Uh, let's get back to the rest of Lily's questions. What are the consequences of such a violation, metaphysically speaking, and how to correct them? With a caveat to what you were just saying previously, that uh, you would never say that word <laughs> in your whole life, but that was just you know a quote of a character. <laughs> right, so. you know, I was quoting somebody. I'll, I'll give you some cover I there. I've never used that kind of language in my life. <laughs> uh, so what are the consequences? Um, I think there's a, several words that come to mind that really point to what those consequences of infringement may be, uh, starting with suffering. I mean, creating suffering for the other self who is being infringed upon or, or suffering for the self or both. I think the negative polarity in particular, because they're such a, a good example of infringement because they do that as part of their trade, uh, creates suffering wherever they go. Well, it's one con consequence, confusion as well, confusing the situation or yourself or the other person um, by infringement, because infringement does not uh, generally lend to clarity, I would say. Um, and uh, karma, another consequence, uh, one in infringing upon another, uh, depending, I guess, on the depth of negativity or lack of love in the infringement, one could incur, as it were, karma for the self. And uh, finally, obviously, the consequence to polarity. Um, you may be jacking up your positive polarity there to be infringing on uh, another person's free will, because the question of infringement versus honoring is so central to um, polarization, one way or the other. I, I think it's the, the key... The chief, the chief. I, I think I was combining key and chief, and chief in there. <laughs> I think I'm definitely bangling that up too. So, I, again, I think that's the, the key differentiating feature between the polarities is how one relates to free will, and then of the the very intertwined energy of love in that question. Love and honoring free will go hand in hand. Control that is absence of love and not honoring free will go hand in hand. Yeah. And talking about consequences, I, I agree with the consequences you sort of highlighted. Um, but I think it's important to point out that in relation to the idea of consequences, that this is a dynamic process, like our lives here and our experiences are dynamic. And so you could say that there are consequences for infringing on free will, but as a positive being, um, if you have truly made the choice to serve others and find love in the moment, then this is going to be a consistent process. And so whatever consequences might unfold from you doing so, um, once you realize that you have done so, the natural path to correcting them is to uh, attempt restitution and forgive yourself. Uh, doing just the latter without the former, I think, is um, much less effective for a positive being. But um, the consequences as they are, are um, they're not uh, static. They're not stuck. You're not like permanently stuck with them. And it's the idea of karma like Ra talked about and uh, the stopping of the wheel of karma is forgiveness. And so I think that is a key to um, correcting infringements is to um, 
forgive others who may have done the same to you. Look at how that dynamic may have played out in the reverse in your life. Realize that you might have forgiveness to offer others in that scenario. Attempt restitution and then forgive yourself for doing so. And in a next similar scenario, uh, do something different. I, I've noticed in my life that whenever there's a lesson that I learn... Uh, and I feel like I've grasped something and actually grown, I'll normally get like an echo of whatever caused me to learn that lesson. It's sort of like a test to be like, did you really get it? Sometimes I haven't, and sometimes I have, but I think that's how life kind of works. Uh, it's sort of a, hmm. a fate, fatalistic um, element to our catalyst, I think. I do think that there is some design in how we experience life and the circumstances that come to us. I do think a lot of it can be very seemingly random from our perspective, but I also think that some things come to us that are intended to sort of make sure that we've learned the lesson that we thought we've learned. Any more thoughts? Yeah, it's a good point to describe that and the process because in every moment we're always living the consequences of our past actions the configuration of our life right now is an outgrowth of or fruit of um, past moments of either honoring or infringing on free will. So, yeah, we never start from like a clean slate. No moment, I think, is a completely... I mean, ultimately, each moment is eternal if we connect to, like, how do I want to say this? If we become present, if we connect to the present moment, each moment is always crystalline and pristine and new in a sense. But in terms of um, memory and identity and our soul stream, we're always in a stream that has a past to it. We don't arrive at the moment completely uh, you know, new. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean to say. Yeah, I think that's my biggest takeaway is that this is this all is a process that um infringing on free will, you're going to do so no matter your chosen path. This is such a confusing realm. We live such hectic and noisy and confusing lives and our society is so condensed and um there's so much chaos that it's just going to be impossible to know exactly how to act in every situation. And the best anybody can do is to just do their best, to um, uh, take each moment as it is and use it, use the catalyst, try to learn from it so that you can do better in the next moment. I think that is the heart of my own view on free will and infringing on free will. Um were there any more thoughts on Lily's questions before we have like maybe a short discussion on more general free will stuff? No, I, I'll, uh, no, no, I'm ready to okay. go into metaphysics. I'll, uh, throw you a curveball. Hit me. <laughs> um, this is obviously, I think, something we've talked about on the show before, but like, also just a constant topic that we kind of talk about. So hopefully it's not too much of a curveball, but um, 
the how do you feel about the paradox between the idea of individual free will and the creator's will and how on the positive path we are seeking to give up our personal will to the will of the creator? Uh, I think that idea is a lot, is very scary for people um, sometimes to say that I don't have individual free will. So um, in terms of free will, uh, how do you perceive that dynamic and that paradox? Man, you could have given me a heads up about this one. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have thoughts on it, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, one reads in spiritual literature that ultimately the highest use of free will is what spiritual texts call surrender. And uh, I think there's a lot of... Ra never uses that word exactly. They never say the word surrender, but um, I've found multiple quotes that I've actually assembled that I feel are saying essentially the same thing, especially when they talk about the work in the North Pole <clears throat> energy system. So paradox is a good word. I think this question connects to why Ra calls it the law of confusion as well. I've wondered to myself if, if possibly they Ra called it the law of confusion versus law of free will. They actually say law of confusion like 23 times or something. They only say law of free will once. It's, it's really Don who says law of free will a lot more. Because of the fact that to, to pretend that the individual is exercising a will that is distinct from the creator is an act of confusion. Um, because ultimately, there is no individual I. Ultimately, everything is transpiring according to the Creator's will. What could be happening that is outside of the Creator's will? Like when you think about it, it's it's literally impossible that um, a will could be outside of or against, let's say, the Creator's will, even rejection of the Creator, even rejection of the law of one. That is still within the design of the Creator. Um, so the more that the entity raises the locus of their awareness, let me step back from that and say that um, will is being operated at every chakra. If you are just a red ray being somehow, and you have no chakras activated above that, your only will is towards survival, and you have no higher thoughts and nothing more complex about you except survive or not survive, maybe. And then the will at the orange ray level is gets into um, the will of personal relationships. Um, <clears throat> And then, without having to examine every chakra, you know, it's will at the yellow ray level, will at the green ray level, and so forth. So, that said, the more that the entity raises their locus of awareness, Ra calls it, which is where one seats one's catalyst, like the center of the being that one is firmly ensconced in. So that's what Ra means when they say the green ray entity or the blue ray entity that the locus of their awareness is in the green ray or in the blue ray. So, as that locus raises, then the expression of will raises, and when the entity reaches the, I would say, indigo ray level, that will becomes 
less an operation of the individual wants and needs and more an operation of the creator's will. So there's much deeper ground to mine here, but to do it in justice, there is a surrendering of the will, a releasing of the will for the orange, yellow, and red rays per se, which isn't to say neglecting the self or suppressing or denying the self, but um, a releasement to the a releasing of the attachment to self gratification or or you know just very self oriented very personal oriented desires and instead a discovering of the higher will and a serving of the higher will and a becoming of an empty instrument or transparent channel for that higher will and ultimately like and I'll wrap it this riff up here by saying ultimately it does get into a quandary of semantics too because that creator's will that higher will is the self too or it's the actual self really but from the incarnate perspective it is a release of the former self-oriented will in favor of the higher will um, which could be the the will of the higher self or the will of the logos or the will, the cosmic will itself. And then we become um, agents for the creator, so to speak. Like Ra says, we are as seven stringed instruments, the seven chakras being the seven strings, that the creator plucks to form harmony. Yeah, I don't have any thoughts. I just wanted to watch you dance. <laughs> just kidding. Glad I could put on a show for you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was all really well put. I um, <laughs> I asked this question without preparing any thoughts myself, so <laughs> we're in the same boat. I threw myself a curveball, too. Um, I was thinking as you were talking, especially in the beginning part of your answer or your response, where you were talking about how nothing can be outside of the will of the creator. And like, that's the ultimate truth that is just so confusing, like so hard for us to grasp because we are so deep in the illusion and it just feels so strongly like we have our own will and we can act in however way we want to. And there is not a greater will that can impose anything on us. But um, if I think there are a lot of perspectives that, the ultimate conclusion is that that has to be true. And I think it's kind of funny because like the, in the law of one, that is sort of the ultimate conclusion that there's nothing that exists outside of the creator's will. And that's almost like a um, coming full circle back to nihilism where like uh, everything is so significant and so like designed by the universe that then it doesn't matter again. Like going from the idea that absolutely nothing matters back all the way back around to like, well, then nothing matters. Um, I think that same conclusion that um, nothing is outside of the will of the creator can also be come to uh, through science as well, through pure materialism. Uh, while they wouldn't say that there is an intelligence behind it, but taking the idea that um, uh, the universe was set into motion and there is a static... Um, observable set of laws of physics that play out and that the entire universe is a set of actions and reactions. 
then really there's nothing that we're doing that can't be predetermined in some way that you can't follow a logical trail from the very first uh, big bang or whatever came logically first in our universe that whatever atom is in your brain that makes this neuron fire that makes you make this decision to do something you could logically trace that back to the beginning of the universe through a sequence of logical actions and reactions that you can then continue forward into the future and so if you take that view then our free will is purely an illusion and that idea used to bug me a lot <laughs> until uh, I kind of realized that that's exactly what Ra says, is the first illusion, the first distortion, I think another word for distortion is can be illusion or obfuscation, um, something like that, is free will. And so um, it kind of lines up really perfectly with Ra. I don't know if that's really how it works exactly. There might be more nuance to the material physics of the process than just action and reaction. But the idea, I think, is in line with how Ra addresses the creator in the universe. Is, um, there really is nothing outside of this will, but we experience it somehow. We, uh, for some reason, feel like we are making choices. We, for some reason, feel like we have autonomy in a system that is actually just a larger system playing out. Um, and I think that is actually the reality. And it seems very, um, when you look at it like that, it can feel so pointless and like just make you want to give up. Like, well, if that's the case, then why am I doing anything at all? But um, there's also a sense of freedom in that, I think. Um, and then the other aspect I wanted to touch on, too, was um, the paradox between the individual free will and the will of the creator. Um, I think that uh, in my view of how things work is the more individual we get, the more we realize our essential nature as the creator. And so it's not a system of shedding individuality. Um, there might be a view of individuality that is shed, but there is a more essential individuality. It really requires us to separate our idea of who we are from our social circumstances, from uh, any circumstances that we're in, really to understand who we truly are uh, in the deepest parts of ourselves. We have to, to get a, like a pure reflection of who we are. Um, we have to realize that you know everything around us is just a reflection of the self. And in that intense self-knowledge and that uh, intense discovery of our own individuality, I think it's the natural conclusion that we come to that would be raising the locus of the serpent among the energy centers, um, that we are the creator and that the, it's a natural thing. It's not like we feel like we are actually giving up our true selves to give ourselves over to the creator. It's that we're discovering that our true selves are the creator mm -hmm. and that there's, it's more like uh, taking off a uncomfortable shoe rather than, you know, putting one on. I don't know if that analogy makes sense. Rather than putting one on. Yeah. Like yeah, I feel like I it. It, the idea of giving our will over to the creator, it can imply that we are taking something else and bowing to it and like sort of conforming to the stricture of another being's will. Yeah. Whereas I see it a lot more as just realizing that um, as we discover our own true 
will, our own true individual will. It is the creator's will. Yeah, and that ties into a concept I've long struggled with. That is responsibility. Where does ultimate responsibility lie for the actions of the individual? But before I get on to that, I'll rather I'll segue into that with a couple bouncing off thoughts, a couple thoughts that bounce off yours. And that's that um, you have the most enlightened human being that I have read uh, is named Ramana Maharshi. And um, he has a quote that's just rife with paradox it could uh have a good home in the Tao Te Ching and he says there is neither creation nor destruction neither destiny nor free will this is the final truth <laughs> like <laughs> how do you wrap your head around that one but um he does speak about the will of the individual in other places um when he says that it, it almost rings of predeterminism when he says, like, if something is supposed to happen, basically, I'm paraphrasing him, it will happen. If it's not supposed to happen, then it won't happen, regardless of what you do. He says that um, the the trouble in life comes from thinking that you are the doer. He said it's like um, somebody on a train, on a moving train, um, think holding a burden on their head. Um, thinking that they need to keep it up, keep that on their head to transport it, whereas if they just set it down, basically the train would carry it. Um, and, and then one more <laughs> that comes to mind, he says, it's like um, if you can see a carved relief into, like see a stone statue carved into the front of the building where the statue is acting as if it's supporting the weight of the building. That's what he says is what we as humans think we're doing with the exercise of our free will. It's uh, basically a fa facade and an illusion. And then um, you have thinkers like uh, a philosopher I really appreciate, uh, Sam Harris, who who has reached the conclusion that we have free will itself is an illusion. Um, I haven't read his thoughts there, so that was pointless to even quote <laughs> or reference him. But um, And then you have, like uh, I've heard Eckhart Tolle describe that you know, we don't really have a choice un until and unless we become conscious because what seem like choices are just these uh, automatic activities of our conditioned past. You know, the voices, the internalized voices of society and parents and so forth just playing out in us. And you, you see that mindset in in people who th who want to reform the justice system based on the fact that individuals are not responsible for their choices because they're just a product of everything that's happened to them. So th this gets into the question of who ultimately is responsible. And it's been a conundrum for me because Ra describes the law of responsibility as um, something in operation that, rather, something that requires of the self that they manifest and exercise that which they have learned. And they de Ra describes how if the self takes responsibility in the moment for their creation, um, then they empower their progress. 
Eckhart Tolle describes it as looking at your life and acting as if the way it is presently configured, however unpleasant it may be, acting as if you have chosen it. So it's this radical level of both authority and responsibility to the self for one's own creation. But um, if the self, the individual self, is an illusion, if the exercise of free will is a confusion or an illusion, then like who is really responsible? Hmm. And I, I don't have a clear way to even look at that. Yeah, I think we can um, wrap up on this topic of responsibility, however long it lasts. Um, yeah, like you're saying, if it's really the creator's will and we want to put somebody in jail for doing a crime, should we put the creator in jail? Like <laughs> hold the creator uh, <laughs> responsible, put the creator on trial? Um, there's a couple thoughts um, along those same lines, and there's actually um, a scenario that I learned about that really sort of informed why I even wanted to talk about free will in this entire discussion. Um, I can't remember. It was a show on NPR. They were talking about people's actions as a result of anomalies in the brain. And talked to my girlfriend about this too. She referenced... It was some famous case of a shooter. I don't think it was the shooters, the snipers in Washington, D.C. It may have been. Um, some famous shooter they discovered had a tumor in his brain. Uh, previous to this tumor, he showed no signs of violence. Um, subsequent to the tumor, he actually described to people that there was a force acting through him, uh, something he couldn't control about how he was acting. Uh, and he went on to kill people. And they later found out that it was a tumor influencing his brain. So where is the responsibility in that? Uh, that is the extreme scenario. If we take that back to the most basic level, uh, like you're saying, people's circumstances influence their neurobiology. Their genetics influence their neurobiology. So even if there's not a tumor in somebody's brain, their brain is being influenced by external circumstances that just like a tumor might influence the brain, something outside of the brain can still influence it just because of the way the brain works. The neurons fire in reaction to something that happens outside of it. Those firings cause an imprint on the brain and uh, that imprint can even be passed down through generations. And so what your ancestors experienced uh, actually has an influence on the genetics that you have in your own brain. And so when things can be um, broken down into that such minute level, where is the individual responsibility of how people act when there is so much context to any single action? And I obviously, you know, nobody has an answer to this, I don't think. But one thing that has informed my contemplation on this is Ra saying that um, the choice is the axis upon which the creation turns. And the density that we are in is the density of choice. It's the yellow ray density. It's the density of self-awareness. I think that that is significant in 
at least beginning to discuss where responsibility lies in the individual. Um, if it can be quantified, maybe it's somewhere in the yellow ray. Maybe it's somewhere in the spark of self-awareness that somebody can take. Uh, and the example of somebody who goes to jail uh, who might be impoverished and they were caught stealing or even they were doing something violent, um, those are expressions of lower ray activity. And there is an element of external environment that informs how somebody can develop. Um, you know, Ra talked about wanderers coming to try to, um, it was, it was a wanderer who wanted to bring light to, to the world so that Tesla, Tesla. Yeah. Um, to give people more like free time in the, when it was dark, essentially. Um, and they talk about leisure being important, leisure time in order to contemplate the law of one. So if somebody is stuck in a survival mentality, if they grow up in a completely impoverished environment and they can only consider their survival and sometimes their survival necessitates violent acts, I'm not saying it's impossible for an individual to develop in that environment and to learn compassion despite circumstances, but it's obviously a lot easier to learn about love when you have time to contemplate love, when you experience it firsthand. When somebody shows you love, it's easier to understand it. Um, so it feels to me like the question to address before how to hold people responsible is simply how to take care of that baseline of getting people to the point where they're not operating unconsciously uh, in these lower chakras. Is a roundabout way of saying that, but um, that has been my line of contemplation and considering like responsibility in regards to free will, like that. Do we have space for, that I can bounce off? Yeah, we're <laughs> we're at like an hour and ten minutes right now, but wow. uh, we can keep going for a few minutes before we close. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of important points that can be mined out of what you said, including like the self can never be separated from their context. Their context is part of their makeup and not only informs the self, but helps to mold the self. There's some, or, or, or a lot of um, people without a view of metaphysics or reincarnation will have a more narrow range of interpreting will and see only the incarnate will, maybe even only the will of the conscious mind, and not recognize that there is also a deeper will in operation in the subconscious too. With the metaphysical view, however, one can expand the range uh, of view on, on free will and recognize that the incarnate will or the will of the conscious mind within incarnation is only one um, part of the spectrum of will. There's not only the will of the subconscious, but there's the will of the, I'll call it for shorthand, the soul, the, the soul that makes decisions in between lifetimes. There, that is a pre-incarnational will that sets the design for the coming life and sets some of the parameters and guidelines and lessons. And that will is in operation, even though the incarnate self 
uh, forgets that completely and seems to be at the mercy of destiny or forces or environment or others. So one's context, including poverty or abusive parents or so forth, is also an expression of their will, their spiritual evolution, the lessons that they wanted slash need to learn, um, which is not at all to suggest that... um, to suggest an attitude of indifference to those in suffering or the marginalized um, or the minorities or, uh, yeah, (laughs) those who are deprived in some way as um, with with the attitude of, well, they chose that for themselves, so um, they need to experience that. And uh, if they live in misery, then then so be it. I mean, the service to others obviously wants to do their best to alleviate that misery and change the conditions and help empower other people, uh, of course. But the, the, and I am not going to be <laughs> the one to um, figure out a plan for reforming our justice system because <laughs> this, that ties so directly into this conversation. But the point is, and just philosophically looking at what, where responsibility lies, that the greater range of will has to be taken into account too. I had stopped at the will of the soul, and it keeps going higher from there. There's the will of the Logos that uh, we are operating within in this planet. There's the will of uh, the Creator, as, as uh, you and I were discussing earlier. So, So one can say that everything which one experiences is a function of the will. In fact, Ra, because will is the first distortion, everything in the manifest universe, seen or unseen, at whatever plane of existence, is an outgrowth of or manifestation of will. Everything is is permeated with this basic impulse to, to know, to seek, to understand, to, to move, to grow, to reach upward. And that will is present in a single cell organism and a complex human being, of course. So the point being, um, that is very present in the law of one philosophy in ascribing total responsibility to the self um, as, as <laughs> um, in correlation with the exercise of will. that this is my final quick thought that what one is experiencing is a function of their their will and needs and desires and i think i already said that but yeah (laughs) yeah that's a can of worms that i won't um, (laughs) begin to unpack (laughs) in the question of if everything is the creator's will then what you know why should we do anything to help others if that's part of their lesson right Um, that could be a whole other discussion so I think that um, we can probably uh, close it out there. Do you have any um, final thoughts? No, I feel I've sucked out enough air from this room. Okay. Um, let's see how well I can do at um, taking Jim's responsibility of sharing love <laughs> with the listeners. Um, we really do appreciate you so much uh, for sticking with us through all these gaps, 
for um for listening for supporting us for sending in your questions thank you lily for this uh, excellent question that um, helped this discussion unfold and uh we love all of you so much and um you have been listening to ll researches we ll researches podcast <laughs> uh infrequent podcast in the now if you've enjoyed the show please visit our websites llresearch.org and bringforth.org thank you so much for listening and for for supporting this podcast with your questions if you'd like to hear us ramble on about a particular topic, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website sometimes. Have a wonderful uh, period of time until the next podcast. <laughs> um, if you can't tell, we read this off of a written form that we haven't changed for so long. And um, I don't know why we keep trying but you know it says things like wednesday afternoon and having a wonderful <laughs> couple of weeks uh so none of that's relevant anymore and we just haven't changed it anyways uh have a great um few weeks until our next podcast and we will talk to you then <laughs> <laughs>